Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. If you'd like to open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to Matthew chapter 28. The passage will be on the screen also, but we're going to read the first 10 verses. So it's Matthew chapter 28. <coughs> After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angels, well, the angels said to the woman, the women, don't be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasping his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. There they will see me. Good morning, everyone. It's so good that we can gather together. Um, yeah, I don't know if you felt that, but it feels so good to hear everyone sing again a full auditorium, so I'm so grateful that you're here this morning. My name's Ben, if we've never met before. Uh, we're going to look at this passage, but let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege it is to be united together. And we're united together to celebrate Jesus, to remember who he is, and to remember what he's done. Father, we pray that this morning that you would give us a confidence in Jesus, we pray that you'd give us a confidence to not just celebrate that here in this moment, but to enter into our world with the boldness to make and grow disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There were some bold claims made this week. I don't know if you saw that. Social media tends to lend itself to making bold claims. But this week on Monday, there was this claim from Donald Trump. He said, I won the election. Now, whether that's true or not, what I appreciated about this was that this sparked the internet into other people making bold claims as well. In fact, Jamelia uh, Jamal, I think is her name, it sparked her to say this, I won the election. She got a little bit carried away and she also said the next tweet, uh, she said, I won an Oscar, she's an actress. And then even further than that, the next tweet where she said, I am Banksy. Now, uh, a guy called Philippe Nito, he's a Brazilian YouTuber, in response to Donald Trump's tweet, he replied and said this, I am Britney Spears. 
And then on Wednesday night, it was all captured with this final tweet from New South Wales, where they said this, <laughs> we won the origin. Now, who knows whether any of that is true, right? Who knows what's going to happen in America? Who knows whether Banksy is actually Jamila uh, Jamal, if that is her name? Who knows if any of that stuff is true? But what we do know is one thing for sure, you can't make big claims without backing it up. In fact, big claims without substantial evidence are completely meaningless. Now, the reason this matters is we're getting to the end of a series today where we've looked at this, this title of our series, Who is Jesus? And in another way, you could have called this series The Big Claims of Jesus. Because from Jesus, we've seen bigger claims than anything you saw online this week, right? If you've been with us, the journey, we've seen Jesus in week one claim to be fully God and fully man. Week two, we saw the claim that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, and he's come to bring his kingdom near. Week three, we saw the claim that Jesus is the author of life, who has the authority to speak to waves and they listen, to forgive sins. Week four, we saw Jesus claim that he was gentle and lowly and that he's come to bring rest. Week five, last week, we saw how Jesus was killed for his claims. And then even in that, we saw the claim that his death was a death on our behalf, taking our place, our sin, and our shame. And so we get to the end of this series where we see these massive claims of Jesus, and it raises a pretty simple question. Is there any evidence to back this up? Is there any factual, substantial evidence to back up the claim that Jesus, all of Jesus said, all that he said that we've seen in this series? Can we be confident when we look at Jesus that he's not a liar or a lunatic, but he is Lord? And can we be confident if we've come this morning as someone who says, yeah, you know what, I follow Jesus, can we be confident if we've come this morning, even if we say, I'm not sure about Jesus, right? Maybe we, we don't say that we're a Christian yet. Can we be confident around the claims of Jesus? Well, we're going to look at that today. We're going to answer some of those questions and push into this space. And we're going to do that as we get to this final chapter in the book of Matthew. And we're going to see that there's one final claim on which the previous claims stand on the back of. Without this final thing, everything falls. And what is the final thing that we see, the final claim? Well, we pick it up in chapter 28. It starts like this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. How can we have confidence in all the claims that's been made about Jesus in this whole series? Well, it stands or falls on this final claim, and the final claim is the extraordinary claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Right now, we see this as we enter the scene here. These two women are on their way to visit Jesus. And what are they expecting? They're expecting sadness. They're expecting sorrow. They're expecting a tomb with a stone in front of it. Maybe a guard there as well. But what do the women get? Something pretty different. They get the stone rolled away. They get the tomb empty. They get the angel sitting on the stone. And it's quite a confronting scene, 
right? Like, again, if you can place yourself there, I feel like today's version of this is going to a cemetery. You know, if you're visiting someone and seeing the casket dug up with the lid off, the security guard, like, lying on the floor and an angel just chilling out there, right? That's a confronting scene. But that's what the women say. Yet, if they're feeling this sense of overwhelmment or awe, the angel speaks and repeats the words that the angel said from Joseph when Jesus was born, do not be afraid, for I come to bring you good news. Jesus is alive. So go and tell the other disciples. So they go, they tell the disciples, Jesus rocks up, says greetings, they worship him, and then they continue. This is the final claim of Jesus. Big claim of Jesus, right? The resurrection. You know, that Jesus died and he was raised to life. Now, as we see the final claim of Jesus, it raises a pretty simple question. What if it's not true? What if it's not true? What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What if last week is the end of the story? You know, if you were with us last week, we saw how Jesus died. We saw the death of Jesus, how he was brutally killed on the cross, how he was shamed on the cross, hung naked there, killed. And we explored that. We sat with that last week. We saw how Jesus was killed on our behalf so that we could be accepted. He was forsaken so that we could be brought in. But what if that's the end of the story? What if Jesus' death is the end of the book of Matthew? Well, if that's the end, if Jesus' death is the end of the story, there's a reality that Jesus would have faded into history like every other cult leader that there's ever been. Right? Like we know this. If you've you know, explored the documentary section on Netflix, we've seen this enough. There are lots of docos about cult leaders who conned a few people and then died, and all we remember them for is a 60-minute special on Netflix. They fade into history. And the reason for that is it doesn't matter how big your claims are. It doesn't even matter if you write them in capital letters. If you die, that's the end of the story. That's it. If Jesus said, I'm God, if he said, I'm going to rise from the dead, but he doesn't, it doesn't matter how amazing his claims are. It doesn't matter what he did in his life. If that's it, it's game over. So what if it's not true? What if the resurrection didn't happen? What if the women got it wrong? What if they were at the wrong tomb? What if they're lying? Or what if what the religious leaders say is true? Because we actually see they come up with a solution for the empty tomb. And we read that in the next few verses Here's what the religious leaders say. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What if the disciples actually stole the body? Now, we'll look at that in a moment, but before we look at the claim from these religious leaders that the disciples stole the body, do you notice here who it is coming up with this? It's the religious leaders. That's significant. Remember last week, if you were with us, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was the religious leaders who said, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down and we'll believe in you. Now, we saw how belief doesn't really work like that. You know, it's not just based on evidence. It requires you to take a step of faith, a belief, a trust, that first step. Here, the religious leaders, 
They know that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. You see this. If you've got your Bibles there, you can see it in chapter 27. And so what they come up with is a plan. In chapter 27, six, uh, 62 to 66, they come up with a plan to stop Jesus rising from the dead. They get a Roman guard to guard the tomb for three days because they know that if they can keep this thing quiet for a few days, that's it. Jesus fades into history. So Jesus rocks up. The angel, whole thing happens. The guards report this to the religious leaders. Everything that happened, Matthew writes for us, everything. So the guards come back with the report. There was an earthquake. There was a stone rolled away. There was an angel who sat on it. And then the tomb was empty. Now, what are we expecting from the religious leaders? They said if Jesus brought himself down, then they'd believe. But they don't. Instead, they come up with a plan. And their plan is, their solution to the empty tomb is, the disciples stole the body. Now, let's think about this. Maybe you've heard this um, idea before that the disciples stole the body. Maybe in conversations today, you've thought, someone said, it could have been the disciples who took the body, and that's how you explain Jesus' empty tomb. Um, it, it sounds reasonable on the surface, but I think when we dig into this claim from the religious leaders, what we're actually going to see is not only is that not reasonable, but what is reasonable is that Jesus rose from the dead. And to do that, we've got seven quick things. Seven quick things to see on the back of this report from the religious leaders and why we can have confidence in Jesus' resurrection. Number one, the first thing we see here is that the enemies of Jesus are admitting that Jesus actually did die. This is significant because there's a theory going around that Jesus didn't really die, that he was put in a grave, had three days rest, and then the stone was moved and he just walked out. He didn't need to rise from the dead because he didn't die. Now, not only is this kind of impossible, when you look at official Roman crucifixions historically, no one came out of that alive. They broke their legs. They put a spear in them like for Jesus. He didn't come out alive out of an official Roman crucifixion. But more than that, right here, we're seeing the enemies of Jesus admit that there was a body. They're saying Jesus really did die. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that these religious leaders are admitting that it was Jesus' tomb that was empty. Again, there's a theory going around that they just got the wrong tomb. You know, like there was an empty tomb, but it was just a different Jesus. It was the wrong Jesus, some other Jesus. It was an empty tomb, but it wasn't the Jesus from the Bible. It wasn't his tomb. But you see, again, there's a few problems with that. Firstly, Jesus is from the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth. His tomb was publicly known. Secondly, the women, they've already been there in chapter 27. They've already visited. They saw where he was laid. But more than that, right now in this moment, the religious leaders are admitting that it was his tomb that's empty. If it wasn't the right tomb, it's an easy way to say that, right? Just tell them it was the wrong tomb. But they're admitting that it was Jesus' tomb that was empty. Number three, it's unlikely that the Roman guard fell asleep. So when you think of God, you know, I know for me, what I think of is a security guard. I think of a guy driving around the tech park with a torch. The Roman guard, though, were not like that. They were military men. So think less security guard, think more secret service guy, right? Like military trained, hardcore guy you don't really want to cross paths with, okay? And there's a bunch of them. On top of that, if the guard didn't do their job, we know that they'd be put to death. That's the consequence. When they stuffed up, they'd be put to death. That's how highly the Roman guard were revered and valued. And that's why the religious leaders get these guys and not someone else to guard the tomb. 
So the idea that they fell asleep, having been military trained men in their life, knowing what's at stake if they don't do their job, the idea that they fell asleep is unlikely. Right? Not impossible. They may have done it, but it's only three days they're asked to do that. I think it's unlikely. Number four, if they did fall asleep, how did they know that it was the disciples? Right? This almost feels like when kids do something wrong and then they have an ex- they're like, did you do it? And they say no, but you saw them do it. In some ways, it almost feels a little bit like that. Like, the, how did you know it was the disciples that stole the body if you're asleep? I don't see anything when I'm asleep. You're telling me that they rolled the stone away, made their way in, took the body, then left? You were asleep the whole time and somehow you knew it was the disciples? I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't make sense to me that they were asleep and saw the body. But then number five, let's pretend they did. You know, somehow, maybe they heard that the disciples stole the body and, or, or the disciples were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Number five, the idea that the disciples had the courage to do that, again, is unlikely. I mean, let's think about these guys. When you think of the disciples and their courage, before Jesus dies, what do you think of? For me, I think of Peter denying Jesus three times. You know, they're, they're kind of the picture, standing around the fire, and they're, they're like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, wasn't me. <laughs> That's Peter. Then we got like Peter, James, and John. They're asked from Jesus, hey, stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane just for a few hours. And what do they do? They, they fall asleep. John records for us that after Jesus' death that these guys hid in a room in fear of their lives. So right now, despite the fact that these guys are known as kind of not the most courageous men, this is a claim that somehow they got it all together and went and attacked a Roman guard, who is not a security guard, but a Roman guard, and they were asleep and somehow took the body again. It's just, it's, it's unlikely for me. But then number six, let's pretend they did. Right? All of that stuff, let's, let's say all that's true. You don't die for a lie. These disciples, we see throughout church history, the disciples will go on and die for their faith in the risen Jesus, for their claims that Jesus rose from the dead. But you don't die for a lie. And we see that all of these guys will go on, apart from John, who gets left alone on an island in Patmos, all of them will die for their faith in the risen Jesus. Now, we know today that people die for extreme beliefs. You know, we see that, whether it's within cults or extremes of religion and politics, we know that today people will die for their faith. In fact, terrorists, you know, all of that sort of stuff, they will die for their faith, but there's a difference. They die for what they think is true. They might be deceived, but they at the very least think that what they're doing is the right thing to do. Yet if the disciples stole the body, they know that it's a lie. They know it's not true because they stole the body. They know Jesus didn't rise because they took it, and you don't die for a lie. You don't get killed upside down on a cross like Peter did for a lie. You don't get speared to death like Thomas for a lie. You don't get beaten, put in prison, burned at the stake, go back over and over again to those things for a lie. Maybe for what you think is true, but if they stole the body, they know that it's a lie. However, number seven, Even if that's true, even if all of those things before it are true, how did they explain Jesus appearing to 500 people across 40 days, written within one generation? You know, like, how how do they explain that? Because this might explain the 12 disciples thing, that they stole the, the body. But we've got from Paul, within one generation, writing that Jesus appeared to 500 people 
across 40 days, and Paul says to the letter in the Corinthians, some of them are still alive. If you want to go and talk to them, go and talk to them. So how does this explain, how do you explain away this? You know, you might say, well, it's a hallucination. The issue with that, though, is if you have a trip, it happens individually, not as a group, right? You can't all see the same thing. 500 people can't do that. You might say, well, it's a legend, it's made up. But the issue with that is that legend took two generations to develop once the eyewitnesses had died. So here we've got within one generation, while the people, the eyewitnesses are still alive, Paul says, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Now, when you see these seven things, something happens. They build a case for the evidence of Jesus. In fact, this guy, Dr. Ross Clifford, who was a lawyer, but is now a principal in a Bible, at a Bible college in Sydney, he, calls it, he, he says, when you see all this, it's what's called the linking of commonly known facts. And what he says is that individually on their own, these things might not prove the resurrection of Jesus. You know, number four, how did the guards know that it was the disciples? That might not prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, but when you see these things together, he says... This proves strong, strong evidence because it's seen as a whole. It's the linking of commonly known facts. And as you see this, the story together, what you begin to see is that actually, yes, the claim of Jesus rising from the dead is massive, extraordinary, the biggest claim that you'll hear this week. But there's strong evidence that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And so we we began thinking about how big claims need to be backed up with evidence, Big claims need to be backed up with evidence. What we see in Jesus is that there's evidence in the big claim. Yeah, Jesus rising from the dead is a huge claim. But there's evidence about this. And what this evidence does for us is it actually changes the question. You see, we had the question, what if it's not true? But the evidence and looking at it, it changes the question to what if if it is true? You see, if it's not true, we're to be pitied. You know, we're wasting our time if it's not true. Who cares that we can have one service again and sing and all that stuff if it's not true, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are to be pitied of all people. But when you look at the evidence, it flips the question and it asks the question, well, what if it is true? What difference does it make if Jesus did rise from the dead? And not just like for us as a church, but for you, for us individually, what difference does it make if Jesus did really rise from the dead? Well, as we finish up this passage, we actually see that Jesus lets us in on this. And he shows us what this means. And there's two things that it means for us. Firstly, we believe. And secondly, we help others believe. Notice how we see this from verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always till the very end of the age. What if it's true? What if Jesus did rise from the dead? Well, we get two things here. Firstly, we believe. And secondly, we help others believe. Now, firstly, we see this in the disciples in verse 17. When they see Jesus, they believe. And did you see this? They worship him. And I love this idea of worship him. They're saying in this moment, we believe in you. We trust in you. We adore you. And and we're recognizing that the claims before this moment, they're true. They're real. You are God. You are the author. You are the one who can forgive. 
And so they kind of, in this moment, they worship him, they, they lift him up, they center their lives on him. But did you notice what happened after it? Some doubted. Now, have you ever seen that before? This line that some doubted, doesn't that feel weird? Jesus is standing in front of them, the risen Jesus, but some are doubting. So what's the deal with the doubting? Why is that there? I love this idea because the word, so originally it's written in Greek and the word in Greek is literally this idea of hesitated. And doubt captures that. But I like the idea of hesitated because I think it's such a human thing. And for us, when we think about it, it's so helpful that when it comes to belief in Jesus and trusting in him, it's okay to have hesitation. You know, for some reason we think, you know, if you're going to put your trust in Jesus, you've got to have everything together. You've got to know every answer to every question and have it all together, and only then can you put your trust in Jesus. But there's a few issues with that. The first one is we actually see from the disciples there's hesitation, but we also know that relationships don't work like that. Right? We know that even in our life, relationships aren't all about having everything in order before you enter into a relationship. Some are. You know, so when I think about my friends, I've got a, I had a mate that we clicked from the moment that we met. And we've pretty much been best mates for 10 years. And from the moment we met, that was it. We were, it was on, right? Same interests, same humor, all that sort of stuff. But then I got friends in my life that it wasn't like that from day one. In fact, uh, my wife Elizabeth, we've been married for six years, and we actually met when I was 13 and she was 14. I was in grade eight, if you're doing the math. She was grade 10, but that doesn't matter. Um, it took us eight years, though, to actually grow a friendship. You know, back then, I was just a little kid. I grew a little bit. What happened, though, we started serving together on camps and different things like that, and then our friendships began to mold together, and then we started dating. But to my shame, when we started dating, and if you're thinking about entering into the dating game, learn from me. When we started dating, there was a bit of hesitation from me. In fact, I said two things that I'm deeply shameful of, but here we go. Number one was I said, I'm not sure about this because I think I'm going to lose all my friends. <laughs> Don't say that, all right? Don't say that. But number two, even worse than number one, is I said, I don't think I can deal with your personality. <laughs> now, if you're thinking about getting into the dating game, don't say that. Not only that, Elizabeth in that moment said, well, should have said, your loss right? Get out of my side, you fool, you're still a boy. But she didn't say that. She was gracious, very gracious to me. But our relationship began with hesitation, and then we dated for a couple of years, and then we got married, and now we've been married for six years, and it's the best friendship that I've got, right? Even in our relationships, they don't begin all the time 100% in. So why would we think that that's got to be true with God? Even the very first disciples, some worship, but for some there's a hesitation. You see, if you've been thinking about putting your trust in Jesus and you're just like, I I don't know, I'm not sure. I don't have all the answers. I I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't have all, I'm just, I don't know what the change is going to mean in my life. It's okay. We see that from the disciples, there's hesitation, but we do still have to take that first step. We do still have to make that first step, even if it's a hesitant one, a first step where we go, you know what, Jesus, I don't know everything, but I'm going to put my trust in you, believing that all the big things you said about yourself, claims to be God, 
Even the claim to rise from the dead, I'm going to put my trust in you, even if it's a hesitant one. The very first disciples did that, but we do still have to make that first step. So the first thing we do based on the evidence is we make that first step. The second thing we do is we help others believe. Now this passage, it's one of the most famous ones for what it means for a church to be on mission. You know, we want to be making and growing disciples. Jesus has called us to. You've probably heard it before. Jesus pretty much says, all authority in earth has been given to me. So make disciples of all nations. Do this all the time, and I'm going to be with you always. It's a sense of, for us as Christians, we're always to be on that front foot in mission. There's never a moment in our life where we're not. Now, we're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks of what this means for us. We're going to look practically for us as a church, what it means individually and corporately for us. You know, practical stuff coming up. But when you see the resurrection of Jesus, you know, it's not just what we do, nor is it practical things on how we do it. But what the resurrection gives us is the posture in which we're able to be on mission. And the posture isn't one of confusion or of fear. It's a posture of confidence. We can be confident moving into our world knowing that the evidence is good and strong and that Jesus, who we say we believe in, did really rise from the dead. And how much do we need confidence? Right? I mean, when we think about it today, I know what it feels like in our world. It feels like our world, even if it's not true, it feels like our world hates Christianity, right? Does it not feel like that? Everything in the media, everything, it just feels like that. You turn the news on, everyone hates us. It's not true, but I know that feeling. Then you jump online and it gets even worse, right? The, the minority generally it is are the loudest and the harshest. And so you jump online and the feeling is, man, no one wants to hear about Jesus, no people are becoming Christians. No one believes in Jesus anymore. And this is it for Christianity, if you listen to the people online. Now, it's not true, but I know it feels like that. And so we then enter into our workplaces, our friendships, our families. And man, we're sweet when it comes to sport or celebrities. But dear God, don't ask me what I did for sun on Sunday. Don't, don't look at me. Don't make eye contact at me. If we're talking about faith, I don't want to enter that conversation because there's a spirit of fear there. And it's almost like in that moment where the, the dog cowering in the corner. You know the picture when the dogs know, know, they know what they've done and they're like whimpering in the corner? It's like, don't make eye contact with me. Sometimes that can be what it feels like when we move into these places when it comes to stuff like faith and religion and Jesus. But you see, when we see the evidence what it gives us is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of confidence that we can move into those conversations confident that whatever question there is, even if I don't know the answer, there will be an answer because Jesus rose from the dead. And I can be confident to move into that space with a boldness and a fearlessness to help everyone everywhere see who Jesus really is. This is what the resurrection gives us, a posture of confidence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Lord, we thank you that this didn't happen hidden, but it was public. People saw it. And we've got eyewitness accounts of it. We thank you, Lord, that we can be confident in the resurrection of Jesus. That as we gather, as we sing, as we celebrate together all that he is and all that he's done, 
that we can leave this morning with a sense that it's true and that it's right. Father, we pray that you would give us help to believe in you, to trust in you, to take that first step. Lord, even if there is a bit of hesitation, that you'd give us the grace and the ability to make that step. And then we pray too, Lord, that as we make that first step to trust in you, that you'd give us the grace and the strength and the power and the confidence to help others see who Jesus is as well. Lord, that we would be a church boldly moving into our community to help people see Jesus knowing that it is true and we have factual evidence that we stand on. Give us grace in this, Lord. Give us help in this. Give us strength. Help us overcome our fears. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.